Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome listeners to the i3 podcast. This is your host, Daniel Grioli, the Market Fox columnist for i3. And today we have a very special guest. It's Jason Zweig, reporter for the Wall Street Journal and author of some classic investment books, such as Your Money and Your Brain, the updated edition of Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor, and most recently, The Devil's Financial Dictionary. I was lucky enough to meet up with Jason in New York a couple of weeks ago. We met at the Columbia Business School Value Investing Conference, and Jason very graciously invited me to sit with him for the afternoon session, and we got talking, and we thought about recording this podcast interview. So we've got some great and interesting ideas to discuss. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Daniel. Thank you. So we like to start off our podcasts with a little bit of background. So Jason, tell us how you got into journalism and how you got interested about writing on investments. Well, I'd always wanted to be a writer from the time I was uh, quite a young boy, probably uh, the age of 12 or 13. And um, my parents were art and antique dealers in New York State in, in the U.S. And I'd always been interested in business, I guess, as a window onto human psychology. Money is a pretty good way to figure out what makes people tick. And um, actually, uh, if you think about it, most classic 19th century fiction anyway, one way or another is about money. <laughs> and um, uh, that's true for classic Russian, French, uh, British novels, uh, most American novels. And for all I know, uh, Australian classic literature too, although I'm not that familiar with it. Uh, and so I, I got into business journalism um, kind of by accident. I was working first as a foreign affairs journalist writing about Africa, and then I got picked up by Time magazine in New York in the mid-1980s, and the only place they had to put me was in their, what they called their economics and business coverage. And uh, I did that for a few months, and then they cut their budget, and I was picked up at Forbes magazine. And um, all of a sudden... I realized a world of billions of dollars and trillions of dollars is really interesting. And after about four years of being a general business journalist, 
Um, I was asked to edit the mutual funds coverage at Forbes and um, quickly became fascinated with it and the performance race and the, the sure bets that <laughs> didn't turn out to be so sure. And, um, and that was uh, 26 years ago. Okay. That's, uh, that's interesting to hear you talk about uh, money and investing as a window into uh, a person's psychology and way of thinking. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely, I guess, after a week like what we've had, there's definitely a lot of psychology and evidence in the way people react to the market. I know you've written about yeah, that recently. Yes. Well, you know, the, the, the great, um, the great economist and, and investing writer, Peter Bernstein, who wrote the wonderful book, um, against the gods and also capital ideas among his, uh, his many wonderful books. Peter was very fond of saying that people think that when someone tells you about sex, You've learned everything that really, you know, is hidden in the innermost core of the person. He said, no, it's only when they tell you about money <laughs> that you really learn, that you really learn what the person is about. And I, and I think there's some truth in that. I think even Freud um, might agree with that. Yeah, you're probably right. As, as far as an incentive and a motivator, it's definitely a powerful one. I, I was thinking also about your comments about uh, literature and, and you're right. Even the uh, the classics were all about marrying well to get money, or protecting an yeah, inheritance, and or losing an inheritance. Exactly. And and if you think about Dickens or Jane Austen, or uh, even Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, Balzac, Victor Hugo, um, you know Herman Melville, Mark Twain in the U.S. Money and class. Um, were really the predominant themes in 19th century literature for good reason because money is money is a basic measure of relative status of uh, success and it's probably the modern equivalent of evolutionary markers that you know, um, adaptive fitness has built humans to be motivated for. Mm -hmm. So, speaking of classic literature, your your latest book reminds me of a short book written by Gustave Flaubert entitled "The Dictionary of Received Ideas," where he outlines all of the the crazy things that people in uh, middle class French society used to say and think. And you've done something similar with the, the Devil's Financial Dictionary. Uh, talk us through that book and, and where the idea for that came from. Well, thanks for that, Daniel. Uh, I'm not sure anyone has ever, with a straight face, compared me to uh, Gustave Flaubert, but uh, I, I certainly appreciate the, uh, the comparison. So, um, yeah, a few years ago... Um, my then teenage daughters were, um, were teasing me about how obsolete and old fashioned my, my website looked. And I realized that, uh, they were right and I needed some, I needed something new and different to put up there. And however, 
it's kind of a central part of my ideology that I do not ever want to write anything that's responsive to, you know, short-term fluctuations in the market or encourages short-term behavior for long-term investors. So I was kind of struggling thinking, well, how can I display something different on a frequent basis that isn't just sort of twitchy and encouraging people to, you know, do something in response to whatever the market did that day. And I was sitting there looking out the window in my home office and my eye landed on one of my favorite books called The Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Bierce, who was a great American writer in the 19th century. And it immediately clicked. And I said, well, I could do a devil's financial dictionary. And then I could post a definition a day. And it wouldn't uh, necessarily relate to what the stock market or bond market was doing that day. But people might like it. They might find it amusing and I know I would have fun with it. And so um, I wrote one and then I wrote a few. And then the next thing I knew, I had a few dozen. And then I had a couple hundred. And I kept writing them in my spare time. And it never really occurred to me to make it into a book. And then a bunch of publishers got in touch with me. And lo and behold, now it's a book. And with luck, it's funny. That's a, that's a great story. Do you do you have a favorite definition? Um, I think I might. Um, I like the I like the shortest ones the best. Um, if you hear me turning pages, because I'm actually sitting here with a copy of the book. And um, yeah, I think uh, I think my favorite. Uh, well, I guess there are two, and come to think of it, they're adjacent to each other. So. Um, uh, first comes the term, then the part of speech, and then the definition. So this one is data, noun, or maybe in Australia you pronounce it data. Um, the raw material from which Wall Street fabricates distortions for marketing purposes. And then um, the definition that comes immediately after that is day trader, noun, see, idiot. <laughs> And then if you if you if you turn to idiot, that definition is idiot noun, the day trader. <laughs> A circular reference. I like it. <laughs> yes. Very good. Um, you mentioned that your your daughters were uh, badgering you about your website, and that triggered another question in my mind. Uh, obviously, you've had such a long career in business journalism, and you would have seen a lot of it change and shift from uh, newspapers with very famous and well-known mastheads now to, to blogs and, and Twitter. Do you have any thoughts on that shift, on what's what's driving it, on whether it's a, a positive or a negative, or, or how business journalism has to adapt to this new environment? Well, so I think in, in I mean I can I'll speak primarily for the American market, although I think it's I think it's pretty similar globally with some variation. You know, I think America I think investors I should say investors are 
better informed than they used to be. And, and they're certainly more rapidly informed than they used to be. You know, in, uh, in the 1980s, when I first got into journalism, most people who invested in mutual funds or investment trusts in, in the UK and elsewhere probably could at best get weekly updates on the net asset value of their funds unless they wanted to call their broker or um, otherwise contact the fund company and uh, try to get more current information. Um, And most people did not have access to intraday pricing on stocks unless they you know, went and sat in a brokerage office and watched the, uh, what in the U.S. we would call the tote board. Um, And today, of course, information spreads globally, almost instantaneously. Um, Whether we're all better off for that isn't totally clear. I think we probably are. I think having more information probably is a social good, but it does make the task of being a long-term investor more challenging in different ways. I mean, you you have to know when to use that information and when to tune it out. And um, I think one of the things we saw in the dramatic market swings that we've seen in early February is that uh, markets are perfectly capable of swinging five or six or seven percent in the course of the day and then ending essentially unchanged. And one of these days we'll see a repeat of something like uh, May 6, 2010, when we had the flash crash in the U.S. and, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average went down whatever it was, now I'm forgetting, I think it was about a a thousand points in a matter of minutes, only to um, regain almost all of that loss. So someone who reacted during those few hundred seconds of, you know, market downdraft um, would have sold at a temporary quotational loss that wasn't even there a few minutes later. And, you know, that's one of the big challenges that certainly the individual investors face, but institutional investors as well. And maintaining a long-term horizon, I think is harder than it ever was. And it never was easy. I think that's, that's a very interesting comment. Uh, when, when I think of the ways that active managers can win, I, I categorize their edge into one of four groups. They could have a, an informational edge, an analytical edge, a, a structural edge, or a behavioral edge. And um, mm-hmm. I agree with you. The first two, the informational and the analytical, are much harder to achieve these days. Information is ubiquitous. Everybody has smart people working for them. And, and so mm-hmm. I think it's much more about a structural edge. You know, can you do something that your competitors can't? 
because of, yep. say, size or capacity uh, examples, mm-hmm. or a behavioral edge, mm-hmm. are you able to, yep. to, to manage your behavior better? I think that's absolutely right. And I think when you look at some of the some of the most successful investors and, you know, three come to my mind immediately, um, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and Seth Klarman of the Baupost Group, all of them have put just enormous amounts of effort into thinking about how to manage money. And of course, uh, Buffett and Munger barely have any structure at all, which is precisely the point. Uh, you know, they don't really manage money for a fee, uh, nor do they have, at least until recently, did they have employees in the conventional sense. But nobody could fire them. Nobody could put short-term performance pressure on them. And in the case of Seth Klarman and Baupost, he's put uh, huge amounts of effort over the years into selecting clients who seem highly likely to share the firm's viewpoint and outlook and time horizons. And I think portfolio managers tend to think of themselves as investors in securities, and they need to remember that they also are investors in their clients. And if they pick good investments but they don't pick good clients, they're not going to be able to hold on to the investments at the time when it's most important to do so because bad clients want their money back just when you should be buying more. I think that's that's a very interesting point. Um, and I, I, I remember that Klarman has, has spoken many times about his clients being a strategic advantage for his fund. Um, because they allow mm-hmm. him to do things that he might not otherwise be able to do. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, I think f- finding the right clients uh, really comes back to how you attract them and how you incentivize them to, to join you and stay. And mm-hmm. I know you've written a lot about this, but uh, unfortunately a lot of our industry incentivizes people to sign up as clients in the wrong way by focusing on on short-term performance and and ephemeral things like that. Uh, do you have a view on why there aren't more people like uh, Buffett or Munger or Klarman that have set up these sustainable businesses where they've attracted the right clients that allow them to, to think long-term? Well, I suppose because it's it's hard work and it's a different kind of work. Um, you know, it involves managing people and it involves managing people who don't even technically belong to your organization, although in a philosophical sense, they sort of belong in your organization. You know, Buffett has that wonderful expression, you get the clients you deserve. And I think it's important to remember that at a basic level, Every successful organization, I mean, uh, this is not my line. I don't know who, who originally came up with this phrase, but, you know, every successful organization at some level is kind of indistinguishable from a religious cult, right? I mean, if you think, if you think about really successful companies, 
I mean, I just in, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, Alibaba, you, you know, we could go all around the world. Um, it always seems as if every employee is a cheerleader for the company. Everyone is on the same page. Everyone sort of eats, sleeps, and thinks about how to make the company better. And of course, that's an exaggeration. And large companies have lots of dissenters. And, you know, there's no such thing as perfect consensus. But it is striking. Uh, and I've seen this many times after long years in journalism, how often when you speak with multiple employees of a single company, you hear the same things. And it's as if they have a shared mindset. And certainly, at great companies doing great things, that's almost always true. And so an expression like you get the clients you deserve requires an enormous amount of focus and consensus among all the employees at a money management firm and sort of a relentless concentration on the message and doing what you say and saying what you do and believing in what you say and believing in what you do. And that will come through. But to be honest, most firms in the asset management industry don't really possess that quality because they're not really doing something distinctive and um, they may believe they're better than other people, but they can only articulate that with, you know, um, PowerPoints and, and Excel spreadsheets. They can't make it sound like something emotional that would make People want to join it the way you would join a religion. Mm -hmm. And with somebody like Buffett, it's very clear. Well, yeah, I, I guess uh, I, I haven't been to one. Uh, you, you may have, but from what I've seen, the photos of the annual meeting look a bit like a revival, don't they? Yes, it, it has. It absolutely has a uh, the aspect of a, of a religious revival. I've been to several, although not in the past few years. And, um, you know, people call themselves pilgrims. You know, they say, <laughs> I'm making the pilgrimage to Omaha. Um, I, and um, there's, there isn't a lot of visual religious symbolism. I think that would be a bit much. But people do, uh, they talk about it that way. And they clearly feel it. Well, I think that's a very interesting idea for, for people engaged in uh, in selecting fund managers or investments is this uh, trying to pick up on that shared culture that you mentioned that's essential for success. Um, the example that immediately comes to mind, maybe because I'm halfway through the book, is Bridgewater. I'm halfway yeah. through reading Ray Dalio's book, and it's it's very clear mm -hmm. that he set out to build something a unique, uh, a meritocracy based on radical transparency, and it's not for everyone. But um, it, he's he's very clear, and everybody's very clear on what they're trying to do. Yes, and and 
you know, without uh, without necessarily endorsing Bridgewater, I think there's a broader point to be made here, Daniel, which is that, you know, in my view, at least, the real tragedy in the asset management industry is not that firms underperform their benchmarks. It's that investors underperform their investments. And, um, you know, some people have referred to this as the behavior gap. It's the idea that, um, you know, if I run a bunch of funds, let's call them the Jason funds, you know, that the return my portfolios generate over time might be an average of 10% a year. But if we use basically an internal rate of return calculation and we look at the performance of the investors in my fund giving effect for the money they added and subtracted along the way, probably adding money at the top and taking money out at the bottom or not putting enough money in before the market went up, what we'll find is that they underperform my funds. They underperform the funds they themselves own because they are not fully committed for the entire ride. And if I underperform my benchmark by, say, one percentage point a year, that's a shame. But if my investors, in turn, underperform my fund by an even wider margin, that's an even bigger shame. And one of the reasons that happens is because Money management firms do not invest nearly enough money in educating their clients and giving them something to feel loyal to other than raw performance. As soon as my performance fades, my clients will leave me if I haven't given them any other reason to be loyal. Mm -hmm. I I think that's that's very true. Um, I think... It's this. I'm not sure if you saw it. I think it was uh, published by a university in Thailand. Uh, they they got some college students and asked them to engage in a coin flipping contest, and then uh, there was a monetary prize for picking heads or tails correctly. And then they asked the students if they would pay for an envelope from an expert telling them what the next coin toss would be, whether it was a head or a tail. And as, as everybody knows, the coin toss is the classic random event. Nobody should be able to forecast it. And yet there was a statistically significant number of students that actually paid, it was a small amount, I think a dollar or two, to get a tip on what the next coin toss would be. And, uh, I believe it. The, the point of the study was that um, humans will go to extraordinary lengths to re- reduce uncertainty, to avoid that feeling that they don't know what's what's going to happen. And investing is an inherently uncertain activity because it's all about making decisions about the future. And uh, I agree with you that a lot of investors out there have have uh, essentially tried to to make that uncertainty go away by looking at something that's done well in the past rather than something that they understand. And unfortunately, uh, the investment industry hasn't helped them, hasn't helped them set the right kind of expectations. 
particularly with those behavioral issues of getting in and out that you mentioned. It's a really big problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We, I, I see that pattern also with fund managers. Uh, they, they make their best returns when they have a small asset base. And then uh, later when they're larger, they lose 10 or 20%, which doesn't sound like much, but given that their asset base is 10 times as large, it effectively means they've lost more than they've ever made in outperformance. Correct. And that, that, that pattern happens, happens a lot. But uh, while we're talking about behavior, let's, let's talk about one of my favorite books that you wrote, Your Money and Your Brain. There's a, a chart in that book that I love, which shows the, uh, I think it's a PET scan of a, a drug addict and a trader about to book a profit. And yes. it's the same two areas of the brain that have, have lit up in, in mm-hmm. anticipation of scoring a hit or scoring a profit. At, uh, that image yep. has always stuck with me. So tell me about the book and, and how you come to write that. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a, to be honest, there's a, uh, there's a Buffett and Munger connection to that. In, I think it was 2004, I attended the um, annual meeting of Berkshire Hathaway and spent, uh, you know, a lot of time listening to Buffett and Munger, um, both in public and in private. And going back on the plane, I was working on a book proposal that a publisher had given, had brought to me about uh, investing in mutual funds. And I'd been, I'd already been working on this proposal for a month, for several months. Uh, and um, I kept, I had rewritten it probably 20 times. And the plane took off from Omaha. And there I was after listening to these very wise, clear thinking gentlemen for an entire weekend. And I looked out the window and I said, why am I trying to write a book I don't want to write. <laughs> Instead, I should write the book I do want to write. And um, I had already, uh, I, at that point, I had already participated in an experiment or two in this field that then was very new and, in fact, had just barely been christened neuroeconomics, which was the sort of the coming together of psychology, economics, and neuroscience. And I said, that's the book I want to write about. And so over the next uh, uh, two or three years, I spent a lot of time reading research in the field, um, interviewing uh, neuroeconomists around the world, and also um, having my brain scanned and my behavior tested in a bunch of different labs, uh, testing a variety of different behaviors. And I found it absolutely fascinating, and I still do. And um, I probably the single most important thing I learned about myself is that I'm entirely ordinary as an investor. Um, and I test very much like the typical person. Mm-hmm. And if my behavior has been any different, and I think it has, it's because of nurture, not nature. Mm-hmm. I 
sort of trained myself over the course of a lifetime of studying investing to behave a little better than my neurons would have me do without a little executive control. That's that's very interesting. It's very interesting. Um, I would. <laughs> I was thinking as you were talking about uh, most of the fund managers that have come to pitch to me, and I was thinking about how unlikely it would be to have a fund manager say, "Well, you know, I uh, rather than just assume I'm a good investor, I've submitted myself to a barrage of tests and found out that I'm entirely normal." But uh, 20 years of trying to teach myself, I think I've learned a thing or two. It's, uh, it's quite different to the pitch that you normally get from a fund manager. It's, it's I don't it. think you would. Yeah, I don't think you would. I, I have never I have never heard that. And um, I've spoken to a lot of these neuroeconomists and to the best of my knowledge, it's extremely rare and it may be unheard of for portfolio managers to get their brains scanned mm-hmm. other than if they have a medical problem mm-hmm. heaven forbid i i do know i don't know if you've crossed paths but we actually have some quite uh high profile neuroeconomists here in melbourne at the university of melbourne and they've actually created a trading lab i don't know if professional investors have have used it, but they have invited us. I was at a seminar. They've invited investors to come and uh, and participate. Um, they've done some fascinating work on emotion and uh, perception of risk. I think the professor's name is Peter Bossitz. Have you crossed paths? Oh with yes, him? I yeah yes I know Peter. Yeah yeah he's originally yes he's originally uh, he's originally um, Dutch or Belgian and yes he's he's done some great work. Yes, um, and uh, and I do know him, and and you should go. You would you would find it interesting. I'll, I might have to take you up on that offer, and I'll, I'm I'm sure I'll find I'm entirely normal too. <laughs> Perhaps even slightly below average. Who knows? <laughs> but, we can uh, always hope. <laughs> we can always hope. It's it's interesting to hear you talk about Buffett and Munger because you're also very well known for your connection to. A Buffett's teacher, Benjamin Graham. You authored the updates of his book, uh, The Intelligent Investor, which is uh, was, was one of the first serious investment books I read. I actually used to bring that with me to the laundromat and read it while I was waiting for my washing. And uh, I learned a lot yeah. from that and from your updates as well, relating it back to the, the tech bubble and, and what happened then. How did you come to write that book? Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for those kind words, by the way, Daniel. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you found it helpful. And uh, I, I don't think I'll ever do laundry quite the same way. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, I had the very good fortune um, to be friends with someone who was publishing a book, an unrelated book, with Harper Collins, which is the publisher of of Graham's book and uh, the then editor of the business line at HarperCollins asked her who might be a good person to do Benjamin Graham and she just happened to mention my name and there's not much more to it than that. It's a, it's, 
for me, it is a persistent reminder of the importance of luck. If he hadn't asked her that question, somebody else would have done it and presumably would also have done a good job. Um, but uh, it was not my idea. Um, I didn't approach Harper Collins with this, the idea, but as soon as they asked me, I immediately said yes. Um, it was one of the great, um, it was one of the great thrills and honors of my uh, professional career. Um, I worked very hard on it for months as a, as my sort of my only job. I worked on it seven days a week for I don't, I couldn't tell you how many days. Um, for uh, quite a few months, and it was the it was the only thing I did, including seeing my wife and family. Um, so it was a very intense period of of hard work. And one of these days, we need to go back and do another update. But I guess until the publisher asks, we'll have to we'll have to make do with the edition we have now. That's. Uh... That's an interesting story, and it's uh, it's always a great reminder to hear uh, successful people such as yourself bring out the importance of luck. That's another thing you don't hear fund managers talk about how how lucky they've been. Um, but uh, but the best investors often acknowledge the role of luck. I think it's a it, it, it's an overwhelming um, it's an overwhelming distinction. I think. You know, if you, uh, uh, my own personal belief is it's very bad karma not to remind the universe out loud as often as you can that you know you're lucky. I think if you go around telling other people that you're not lucky, you're skilled or brilliant or handsome or athletic or whatever it might be, uh, you, you're really asking for, um, you're you're angering the gods, <laughs> and that's not to say they won't be angry at you anyway if you remember how lucky you are. But I think it improves your odds a little. I think that's some that's some good advice. So uh, as a as a writer who spent a lot of time looking at the work of Benjamin Graham, I, I wanted to ask you a question that came up in another podcast interview. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago when I was in the U.S. after the, the conference at Columbia, I went to Boston to interview Jeremy Grantham. And in mm -hmm. part of the discussion, we discussed his, uh, his view because he published a paper early this year and I think following on from one late last year that we're in the later stages of uh, a blow-off rally in the U.S. stock market that could take it higher before... There's, uh, there's, there's problems. And, and he sort of took me through the hypothesis and why he felt that way. And then we moved on to a broader discussion of what is different and what is, isn't different because he's written a fair bit about uh, profit margins being different and, mm -hmm. and this current yep. environment being different to historical ones. And he flipped the question around on me. He said, well, the question isn't what is different. It's what isn't different. He said virtually everything mm -hmm. is different. And one of the things he then said was that uh, value investors in particular need to rethink their assumptions. They've been, I think he used the phrase, they've worshipped too long at the altar of Graham and Dodd. 
and that even Graham himself, as he got older, started to think more about whether his methods of valuation were too conservative, started to pay more attention to growth and the ability for companies to reinvest. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, as somebody who knows Graham's work probably as well as anybody, um, how you think he might invest in today's environment? Do you think he'd still be looking for net nets? I don't think so. I, I should, I guess I should take a minute right now, Daniel, to, um, say that, uh, we're speculating. Sure. I mean, of Absolutely. course, Graham, di Graham died in 1976. Um, I can only make an educated guess as to how he would invest. There's a couple of things that are important to remember. Late, very late in his life, a year or two before he died, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but close to verbatim, um, I'm no longer a believer in elaborate methods of financial analysis. And he went on to propose something that, frankly, sounds quite a bit like um, market tracking index fund. Uh, on the grounds that uh, equity markets had become quite a bit more efficient than they were back in the 1920s when he got started on Wall Street. So that's the first point. The second point is from the time he published the first edition of Security Analysis in 1934 until he published the final edition of the Intelligent Investor in 1972, Graham revised his formulas many times. With almost every edition he published of both of those books, he changed his, his valuation thresholds. So in the 1990s, it became common for people to mock Graham as this sort of out of touch dinosaur who said you could only pay 10 times earnings or one and a half times book value or multiply the two and take the product or you could only buy net nets companies selling for less than their uh, networking capital per share and uh, those kinds of um, summaries of Graham's thinking are not fair um, that's what he said in an edition of one of his books. But if you look at the next edition or the one before it, you'll see he was using different yardsticks. He was a big believer that market conditions do change and that you, as an investor, always have to test your priors. Do my preconceived ideas still hold in today's marketplace? So that's a long um, introduction to what I think is the best answer to your question. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately myself, which is very basic, and it is this. The fundamental principle that underlies the kind of value investing that Benjamin Graham and his co-author David Dodd talked about a lot, Graham and Dodd investing, is regression to the mean. And it, it can be expressed um, very simply uh, in poetry and biblical language. 
um, the epigraphs, the quote at the beginning of Graham and Dodd's book, Security Analysis, from the Roman poet Horace, is, many shall be restored that now are fallen, and many shall fall that now are in honor. Or, as uh, the good book has it in the book of Matthew, so the last shall be first and the first last. And that's regression to to the mean in a nutshell. The best performing companies will go on to perform less well, and the worst performing companies will go on to perform better. I think it's an open question whether that is still true or still as true as it was in Graham's time. I don't know the answer. Seth Klarman asked that same question at the Columbia conference you and I attended and also in his latest annual report. And a lot of thoughtful investors are asking that. I don't think we know the answer for sure, but I think you can't be a prudent, well-informed investor if you aren't at least asking that question. Uh, I think it's fine if you think hard about it and you, your answer is regression to the mean is not dead. The best performing companies will go on and perform less well. And the poorly performing companies will end up doing better. That's fine if you arrive at that conclusion by testing it. But if you just treat it as received wisdom that is kind of uh, frozen in amber and cannot be changed because it's the sacred word of, you know, Benjamin Graham or any number of other investors of the past, you will not be happy if it ultimately turns out not to be true. So um, my short answer is I don't know. My intuition is when all is said and done, regression to the mean probably is still with us, but there isn't much sign of it right now, is there? And I think that's that's Jeremy's central thesis that it will still happen, but yeah. um, technology has probably changed the rate at which it will happen, and mm -hmm. and perhaps the distribution of which sectors get affected first and and by how much. Yeah, um, and I think it's very important. It's very important to recognize that the rules of the game can change. I'm not going to say that the rules of the game have changed because I'm I'm still agnostic about this. I'm still thinking about it. I'm doing quite a bit of research, looking at a lot of data. I My mind is nowhere near made up. But it's hard to look at companies like Amazon or Alibaba or any number of other companies we could name. And I'm... Um, and say conclusively that they their growth rates have to slow down. Common sense says that, and history implies it. But maybe there's something new. There's a new force at work here we don't fully understand yet. And I don't. I think if you're smug about knowing the answer, 
before even really trying to listen to the question. That's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's great advice. It uh, it reminds me of of something that my old boss and mentor, who was a great contrarian investor, used to tell me all the time. He used to say that uh, things revert to the mean. We just don't always know where the mean is. Exactly. And uh, and and that and that could be the situation now that the that the uh, you know things like profit margin, sales growth, uh, maybe the levels for certain types of companies are different to what we're what we're used to mm-hmm. dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, they're obviously capital mm-hmm. light. They employ fewer people. They're more global yep. in nature. They provide services rather than things. Mm-hmm. Um, different in a whole lot of ways. Yeah. It's, it's Not dependent on raw material costs. Um, we could go on and on and on. It's interesting to see the debate, and I'm sure you would have seen a lot of this on Twitter, um, from people like uh, Professor Scott Galloway at NYU, about uh, mm-hmm. the social impact that some of these companies are having. Um, and I wonder if whether that, uh, perhaps not so much reversion to the mean, but whether that becomes a factor, uh, that uh, people get much more conscious of things like online addiction or the the impact of social media or the dominance of one online retailer and um, there's almost a bit of political backlash or social backlash yes and i think um i think that is a factor that is hard to price but could easily um could easily have an effect and um Regression to the mean can happen in all kinds of ways, and um, once we think hard about all these issues, maybe we'll have a better sense of whether that could be a factor here. I, I mean, I think that's very plausible. Mm-hmm. Just uh, two final questions. Thank you very much for, for your time. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts as a long-term student of the investing world and somebody who's keenly interested in behavior, uh, both of in investors and of, of their clients, I'd like to get your thoughts on smart beta, the ubiquitous rise of ETFs and robo-advice. Yeah, so um, I do have a definition of smart beta in my dictionary that I think kind of summarizes what my thinking on this now that you mention it. Please, um, share it. <laughs> yeah, which is smart beta noun, an index and in associated index funds designed not to match the market but to beat it, often by overweighting investments believed to offer greater value and underweighting those that seem to offer less. Smart beta just might work at least for as long as most investors are too dumb to notice that it is working. And I I think popularity is the potential Achilles heel of smart beta. Surely we can agree that um, if you bought every um, possible ramification of smart beta, you would end up owning something that looks pretty much like the total equity market. Um, thus eliminating your ability to outperform. Um, you would get average, not superior returns if you did that. So then the challenge becomes identifying 
which of those smart beta strategies will outperform? And my intuitive answer would be whichever one the fewest number of people believe is likely to outperform. <laughs> because um, to the extent that it's highly popular, it's likely to end up overpriced, which will lower its uh, future expected return. Um, so far, we haven't seen a lot of that, although certainly, if I remember right, in 2014 and 15 in the U.S., um, dividend strategies, which some people regard as a form of smart data, became very popular and almost immediately disappointed people. I think um, smart beta is most interesting for the way it promises to disintermediate a lot of traditional asset managers. It wasn't long ago that people could say things like, I buy value stocks or I buy growth stocks. And if that's all a manager can bring to the table, that firm is probably easily replaceable with a smart beta ETF that can do the same thing at lower cost and probably lower risk. So I think for the end user, for the investor, it gives you another tool in your quiver, which is to be able to say, before I hire this manager, is there some smart beta ETF or combination of them that I could use to capture at least as good performance? So it's kind of a, at the very least, it's a measurement tool and um, it offers the potential to uh, test the performance claims of managers. I, think um, I myself, Oh, sorry, Daniel. Sure. I myself don't own any smart beta fund, and I don't really feel the need to do so. I think the ultimate test is can they outperform by a margin greater than their excess expenses? And that is something we do not know yet, at least on the long run. I think you're. you're observations about smart beta uh, being a tool to assess managers and promote competition uh, are spot on. Uh, one of the things that used to frustrate me in my meetings with managers is I'd, I'd see virtually the same slide in everybody's pitch book, which was an inverted <laughs> pyramid of how they'd screen the world. Yes. And essentially, that's what a smart beta strategy is. It's a screening strategy. So virtually every yes, manager... Correct the first step in their process is some form of smart beta. And so I would ask yep. the question, all right, so if, if you've taken a universe of 10,000 stocks and you've screened it down to 500, and then you let your analysts loose on that 500, what are they adding over that first step that's that's eliminated 90% of the index? Yeah. Um, and very few managers had actually even looked at it. That's the thing that it was almost an instant fail. Mm -hmm. If a manager came in my yeah. office and they hadn't even asked that question, um, I pretty much turned off to the rest of the the meeting. Um, and and I'm as not you say, surprised. I, I don't think I don't think managers are going to be able to get away with that in the future. I don't think so either. I think it really has changed the competitive landscape, and that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. 
Uh, so in terms of robo-advice, do you think that that can help with some of the behavioural issues that we discussed earlier, the, the behaviour gap? Well, I don't know for sure, but I think it can. This is controversial. Um, in the U.S., at least, many people feel that robo-advisors um, will fail the test in down markets, that in down markets, investors really want a personal advisor to hold their hands, to call them, to uh, send them personal emails, to do whatever is necessary to keep that person invested in, you know, uh, negative, uh, brutal market. But the robo-advisors have some pretty good tools at their disposal. They're able to use the data that they gather with their technology to um, know which investors they should focus their attention on because they can tell who's Jeremy, you know, who doesn't buy when the market go goes down a little um, or who sells a little when the market goes down a little. And then they can write algorithms that enable them to focus their outreach on the people whose behavior they have measured mathematically in a way that human advisors usually don't have the computational firepower to do. So I think it could go either way. My guess is, at least in the U.S., we're going to find that the robo-advisors are better at behavioral modification than a lot of people think and that they might even be better at it than a lot of people are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a... And I think that's, and, and I think that's good for competition as well. I think that forces the human advisors to up their game, and uh, that's good for everybody. Yes, uh, definitely. I, I think that uh, all of this uh, technology is, it's shifting the focus of the investment industry. It's it's putting the onus much more on the incumbents to justify their value add. And what are they yep. doing for the client, really? Absolutely. It's it's commoditizing a lot of the simple stuff and then forcing them to say, mm -hmm. well, what is your value add? That's, right. Yeah. It's a, it must be interesting from from your seat to watch this happen and and talk to the the main players on both sides. It is. And, you know, I, I always like to say that, uh, you know, the, the financial markets, the stock market in particular, is um, the greatest show on earth. And when you work at the Wall Street Journal, you have a front row seat at the circus. <laughs> it, it, uh, yeah, you must, you must have seen a lot. So uh, our final Definitely. Our final question is uh, a question for budding and aspiring writers. Um, now, in, in the days of, of social media and blogging, a lot of investment professionals are, are writing content. I, I dabble a bit myself. Um, can you give us any tips as a pro, as somebody who's been there and done that, on how we can make our investment writing better? Um I would say um, a few things. So certainly practice helps. Um, the more you write, the better. 
Um, you should write uh, obsessively if you want to get better at it. It's like anything else. Um, I think it's very important to read more. Um, I, uh, when I am not at work, my rule is that I read nothing that has anything to do with finance or investing. Instead, I read things that I hope will make me a better writer, and that might mean a history book or a science book or an art book or poetry or, you know, classic fiction. My only criterion is that it has to be better written than anything I can write. I, I, I'm not going to learn from people who don't write as well as I do. Fortunately, the numbers of people who write better than I do is huge. <laughs> uh, and I'm, and so I have lots of choices of, of great writers to learn from. Just, uh, you know, think about who your favorite novelist is, your favorite poet, your favorite historian. If you don't have any, get some. Um, uh, think about why some writers are famous and others aren't and read the ones who've stood the test of time and learn from them. I typically read with a red pen in my hand. Um, if I'm reading something that I don't think is well-written, I scribble on it and uh, dissect it and pull it apart and then put it back together in my own words in a way that I think makes it better. And if I'm reading something that's better than what I can write, which is usually the case, I'm taking notes on trying to figure out how this great writer did that. And um, that's, I think that's the key. Write more, read more, but in your spare time, don't read about your specialty. Read outside your specialty. It'll broaden your horizons. It'll make you smarter and maybe wiser and more interesting. On, on that note, on that very, very wise note, I would like to thank you, Jason, for your time today. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk all things markets and uh, investing with you, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Daniel, thank you for having me on. It was a lot of fun, and um, I was delighted to be uh, your guest. Well, I'll let you get back to the volatility in the markets. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Bye. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. Thank you. 